Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm Dan Ferris. I'm the editor of Extreme Value and The Ferris Report, both published by Stansberry Research. And I'm Corey McLaughlin, editor of the Stansberry Daily Digest. Today we talk with John Zalaitis of Covatis Capital. And today Corey and I will talk about stuff we don't normally talk about, and we're not allowed to talk about the stuff we always talk about today. And if you want to get in touch with us, remember, send your notes to feedback at investorhour.com and tell us what's on your mind. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. All right, so these are the rules. <laughs> no talking about the stuff we always talk about. Fed, inflation, interest rates. I mean, if you got to work it in there, put it in there and get off of it quick. Okay. All right. All yeah, right. I, did, accept? I, I accept. Uh, did somebody put you up to this or what, what's going on? <laughs> no, I'll tell you why yes. though. I had, uh, I submitted a digest for publication and they were saying, we're publishing something else that says the exact opposite. And maybe this time we'll publish his thing instead of yours. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it's perfectly reasonable. We make these decisions like all the time because it just, it looks stupid. You look stupid for publishing the exact opposite thing five minutes apart. It's just, you know, human nature. So I thought, well, you know, they, they've got a point here. I'm always talking about the same stuff and, and I'm getting tired of myself. I got tired of myself in that moment. And I, it's one of the things I'm grateful for. When you write for a living, as you well know, because you write 10 times more than I do, you, you need editing and you need feedback before you're published. And, you know, it's just one of the ways that this gig has just been great for me. So I thought it got me thinking, well, yeah, okay, they're right. What? And the question then for us today we know what we're not supposed to talk about. What I think we should talk about is what you and I might be bullish on at this time. What do we like? What do we want to buy? What are we buying? All right. I like it. Flip it on its head a bit here. Yeah. I, like I've said, I don't know if this will surprise people or not, or you even, but I've said I've been bearish on like the Fed and the ability for them to get inflation down. Sorry, I just mentioned it right off the top. But I, I, you know, that doesn't mean you can't be invested in stocks, nor should you not be invested in stocks. So I'm actually, you know, personally, I'm bullish on U.S. stocks in general right now, um, just based on what I saw happen at the end of last year, uh, where I thought sentiment was kind of bottoming out. And then what we've seen since then, uh, just in price action alone, I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah, brilliant call, by the way. And so, you know, going forward until the current story changes uh, more dramatically, I would remain uh, that way. So I'm not, uh, you know, I, also, so stocks, I would expect to go higher until, uh, you know, un until the, the story changes here and central banks have a reason to change policy, which means the economy is in the crapper at that point. Um, mm-hmm. I think we get there eventually. In the meantime, though, you can't, I, I won't argue against what prices are doing right now. And, you know, that's more of a short term, medium term outlook. But I am bullish on that for the short and medium term. Also, you know, I the yields just keep going up. And on like T-bills for short term T-bills for cash, it's just to me, it's uh, it's, you know, from going from nothing to. 5% in 
a year and a half. It's pretty nice if you actually are paying attention. So um, those two things to me, and those are two big obvious ones, but that's that's what I'm looking at. I'm actually bullish on a number of things. Housing is one of them. I picked three housing stocks in the Farish report recently, and I thought I was kind of bearish and concerned earlier in the year, but then, you know, I always had this sort of nagging thing, and I mentioned it on the show. I don't know if I mentioned it in the newsletter, oddly enough, but I did mention it on the show that um, the structural shortage in housing, the all-time low inventory um, could and I believe has and, and will keep overwhelming the any other fundamentals like, you know, higher mortgage rates, you know, 7% mortgages or anything else. And I think that um, it's just a, the home builders are a good bet. People aren't selling because they have 3% mortgages and who wants to sell and then, you know, take on a 7% mortgage? Nobody. And so that crimps the supply a bit. And the people who are stepping into the breach and fulfilling the demand are the, the home builders. And I think this idea of overhang in the institutional buyers, like invitation homes or something, I, I don't I think that's overdone. I think their access to capital is ten times greater than the average individual FHA thirty year mortgage kind of person. So um <clears throat> I think they'll be able to roll over and sure they'll you know, they'll lose a hundred bips or something because they're rolling over, but they'll actually do pretty well, I think. So they'll be fine. They'll raise rents or whatever they're doing. They'll they'll be fine. I don't see, and and not only that, but even if even if invitation just liquidated and dumped it all in the market, it's I did the quick math, and it's like less than two tenths of a percent, you know, injection in, into the national housing stock by value. Interesting. Um, it, yeah, it's eighty thousand homes. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. just like I, I've heard stories too about uh, people. You know, obviously mortgage rates are going higher, but. Uh, the ability to kind of negotiate or get uh, mortgages that are below, um, you know, the kind of the listed mortgage rates uh, to through some of these home builders and, and different things like that. So I think there's some ways that'll keep keep it go, keep the demand going too. Yeah, and if let's say you know mortgages go seven, eight, nine percent or something, and and prices come down fifteen percent, well, you know. That's the prices will come down and it'll adjust. And then, it, you know, that adjustment means that it just proceeds forward as before. You know, it's not like uh, there's a wall there. I don't think there's a wall there. If there is a wall, I think it's higher than 7%, obviously, very obviously, obviously. But I think it's probably higher than 8 It's probably up north of 10 So, you know, I, I think um, people need some place to live. They formed. They're forming lots of households, so I'm bullish on some home builders. One thing I was thinking about recently, uh, I read a headline about the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, um, which has like a hundred different plus different countries contribute money to it, um, with the U.S. being the the leader, um, bailing out the country of Pakistan the the other day for a $3 billion loan, giving them a $3 billion loan. And this sent me down a little rabbit hole of the IMF. And I was like, okay, Pakistan, they, they've been in, in trouble 
financially for this is like six months now and they were approaching a deadline where they were gonna basically like default and so the imf comes in gives them this money this loan so that got me thinking okay well how does the imf actually work and who's 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 involved in it and I'll, i'll get to why this is a bullish thing in a second but then i saw the united states contributes 17 percent to the IMF's quotas every year, which is the, I think it adds up to like a trillion dollars, right? That's that's in this uh, fund. So I'm like, for all the negative, bad, terrible news we have around the good old US of A, we are still by far the financial leader of, of the world. And this it got me thinking just with the, you know, the recent you know, little revolt in Russia, I'll call it little revolt. Not if you were there, it wasn't little, but if, <laughs> but like what's going on with Russia, China, you know, you have China coming back to the table to talk to us, to talk to the U S because their economy is slowing down. It's, you know, this whole geopolitical game, the U S is still in a really strong position overall. So yeah, I sound like Warren Buffett. I am, you know, Always bullish on the the future of the United States of America. That doesn't mean we don't have problems, but compared to other countries, we're still the the best house in a bad neighborhood. Yeah, and and when you consider actually, best house in a bad neighborhood is like in terms. You know, if you're a, sort of a libertarian minded person, you could say that about the government. But in the world in, in general, like more people have it better than ever. I mean, more people have a higher standard of living than ever before. If you're talking about governments, the U.S. is like the best one in a bad neighborhood. And there are others that are arguably slightly better or much better. I don't know. As far as our standard of living goes, you know, it's a really, it's like one of the best neighborhoods in the world. And the world is a pretty good neighborhood overall these days, I think. I'm bullish on humanity. Yeah, yeah. That's, on, that's what immediately. The, the ascent of yeah, man. That's what came to mind when you first posed this question. That's what I was like, well, I'm bullish generally speaking, on the future of, of humans. Uh, if you're not, then it's, it's not, not, too, not too fun. I know. Um, I, got, I got some other ones. I mean, we've, we've talked about being um, bullish on oil and gas because of you know, the, the strong disincentives to produce. Maybe, we, maybe we'll skip that one. We actually had Vitaly Katzenelson on here recently talking about pipeline MLPs with some of the same arguments as, as the stuff that flows through them. And I thought that was a pretty good one. Um, you know, gold, copper, and, and you don't have to, like to buy gold, you don't have to, you know, you can look, you can reference the long term of value preservation for 5,000 years. We don't have to mention that, that central bank in Washington that we, we swore we wouldn't mention in this episode. Um, we we can just say it's a great it's been a good long term wealth preservation vehicle, and now today the discrepancy between the gold miners and gold prices is pretty wide, and the gold miners are in, you know, producing the you know the larger mid and larger cap gold miners are in better financial shape and have. I don't want to accuse them of having discipline because I know they'll disappoint us all at some point. They always do, or they always have. Maybe we should be more optimistic about that too. 
but the the gold miners um to me are very attractive nowadays all right yeah i uh yeah i mean i i'm i'm bullish generally on high quality companies that aren't gonna get caught up in this higher rate era uh if any i would stay away from the or just know that the companies that are already have huge amounts of debt are going to have to refinance at higher levels eventually right so so you might you call them Corey? might you call them cash generating self-funding type companies that don't need the capital markets therefore the expense of the capital you know the the cost of capital out in the market it's yes somewhat irrelevant products or services that are going to be in demand no matter what happens um you know and if it's connected to a a theme like oil and gas where you have other macro factors behind it too um like oil's not going anywhere for decades except into cars <laughs> and and everywhere else um like just gasoline and and never and you know it, it's going to keep being used and so you know i think this is why you got Warren Buffett buying up, you know, as many shares as he can of Occidental Petroleum. Uh, with, you know, all they're doing innovative stuff too. I think they're kind of on the, the, f- at least putting up the idea that they're participating in the kind of the green push too. But they're still not giving up their their core business. So, um, you know, that's that's one. And yeah, just just the company good companies for the long term you know again it goes back to timeline you know uh obviously those companies aren't gonna it's a matter of like who does the least worst in a bad recession or a recession scenario but you know i think you really can't go wrong with those over the long term we've already recorded today's interview with our guest john salitis there's there's no harm in mentioning that and i want our listeners to focus in on how he talks about google Alphabet is the parent company, the publicly traded parent company, but Google and all the th- ways we use it and, you know, what would happen if it suddenly wasn't there and you couldn't use Google Maps and YouTube and Gmail and, you know, I mean, I use all these things and, you know, just search. I mean, they own search worldwide. So it would be, it would make a huge, big difference. Not you, you know, having Microsoft Word and Excel suddenly gone from my life. I mean, not to mention the Windows operating system, right? Suddenly gone from our lives, just not there. It would make a vast difference in your daily life. Yeah, you know, there's some right. there's some negatives. And, and to that, again, but. that's a company that you know services that that you can't live without, or people people have grown to not that you can't live without anymore. So. I looked at the history of the P.E. ratio of Google. I was like, wow, that thing got down to 16 times earnings and I didn't pour every cent I own into it. Well, I'm an idiot. And now it's about 24, which compared to like, you know, the other big ones, Apple and Microsoft, they're in the 30s. And of course, Amazon and NVIDIA are well over 100. NVIDIA is almost 200 times. So, you know, seems like a pretty decent deal still, even though it's up you know, what, 50% or whatever. They're all up 50%, it feels like, <laughs> at this point, year to date. Um, and they're just amazing cash gushers. I mean, I do have some worries about them, but long term, I know I'm going to be using them for as long as they're available. Right. Yeah, the thing I always think about with, with Google slash Alphabet 
is um, YouTube because for an entire generation, YouTube is the primary source of information, uh, you know, video, whatever it may be. And that, I, I forgot what exactly the size of it is, but YouTube on its own would be one of the largest companies in America, um, I think in the top 10. And Google's got its search business and ad business and YouTube. So it's it's all, and that started off as, uh, what Google has Alphabet has is this other bets category in their business. Um, YouTube started off, and some other things have started off in the other bets category uh, because they have so much cash on hand at at all times. They're able to make these other other bets that then turn into, you know, some of the the great innovations that that they've come up with. So right, it's like a self funding yeah. VC. You know, it's just gushing cash and putting it into all these bets and then whew, one of them mushrooms into yeah, something. Not all of them have to work, but if a couple of them do, yeah. No, no, a couple of them out of, you know, you can have a hundred of them and two of them could go right and, and you're golden. I mean, that's kind of, it's a dramatic oversimplification of the, of the VC model, but it's sort of like that. Um, Thinking long-term is also hard to do, but it's, uh, it's what you need to do, I think. It is what you need to do. Our guest today, John Zalaitis, is very good at it. And we will talk about that very topic because his approach is just like no short term. There's no short term in this guy. And uh, I've known him for, I think, about 10 years. I see him most years in Colorado at the Value X Vail that we've mentioned recently. Um, I can't wait for listeners to get introduced to this guy. He's a really smart investor. And we'll talk specific stocks and all kinds of things. So let's do that right now. Let's talk with John Zalaitis. Let's do it right now. Over 1 million people around the world follow Wall Street veteran Mark Chaikin for his shockingly accurate stock market predictions. And he just gave them a dire warning. Mark says, we're about to witness a historic stock market shakeup that could soon create devastating losses for investors who don't know what's coming. As a result, you only have 90 days to move your money. You see, Mark spent 50 years on Wall Street at some of the most prestigious hedge funds in history, and he's been on Fox Business and CNBC countless times. But this is a financial story no one else is telling. If you let this take you by surprise, you could be in for a world of pain. He explains everything in a brand new free report available at www.rollingcrash23.com. He includes the name and ticker of a popular stock that could be directly impacted by what's happening as well. Mark warned of beloved pet brand Chewy before it fell 45%, tech company C Limited before it fell 66%, furniture company Wayfair before it fell 76%, social media favorite Snap Inc., before it fell 36%, and food delivery company DoorDash before it fell 65%. Mark even called the Amazon crash before the famous Fang stock fell 35%. So you'll want to avoid the stock in his new report immediately. Again, simply go to www.rollingcrash23.com for your free copy of this new report. All right, it's time for our interview. This week's guest is John Zalaitis. John Zalaitis started his career in finance 
1996, following degree studies in philosophy at Kenyon College and the University of Oxford, he has followed retail and restaurants as a senior analyst since 1999, mostly on the sell side. He also managed money in a buy side role at a long short equity fund in 2013, 2014. He was named in the Wall Street Journal's best on the street list. And John founded Quo Vadis in 2017 and has been creating research for professional money managers and individual investors specializing in the retail and restaurant sectors. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Dan, thanks so much for having me. So um, just for our audience sake, I met John, I don't know how many years ago, sometime in the last 10 years at the annual ValueX Vale conference in Colorado that we talked about last episode. And I have to credit John with like one of the better picks I made in my newsletter because, well, he, we were sort of thinking about it, but like he tipped the scales and then we came back home and did our own work and said, yeah, and it was Starbucks and it out of the gate, it just like doubled pretty quickly in, in a year or so, some short time frame. It did super well. So thank you for that, John. <laughs> uh, you're, you're welcome. It was a little bit, to be honest, there was some luck involved, which I guess is always the case. But just before the conference um, that year, which was maybe four or five years ago, uh, there was a kind of cascading series of bad announcements that happened like literally like the week before the conference. So then when I, I had already decided to present the stock prior to that time at a higher price, but uh, having those things happen literally like the, the days leading up to it set the stock at, at uh, a pretty attractive uh, interval. And so that helped the performance of the pick, that's for sure. Yeah, um, I'll take luck. <laughs> I'll take it all day long. Um, let's see. This year, I found your presentation really interesting. It wasn't a stock pick. It was a psychology philosophy sort of a presentation. Um, I wonder if you could just give our listeners a little taste. Sure. I mean, I like to give presentations on process. Um, I, I do like to present individual stocks because uh, that's something that I've done a lot in my career. And uh, as a sell side analyst, I typically had to present two to four times per week, every week to my sales force. Now, those presentations were typically quite short and very punchline driven. Like, here's the one liner, why we're going to buy this stock or sell this stock today um, with a lot of sales um, kind of in mind. But for the conferences, these are typically 10 to 15 minute presentations, which go into a deeper dive about our thesis and why we want to own or sell a stock. Uh, but also still with the generalist audience in mind. So that is, I'm not speaking to, or I don't believe I'm speaking to people who are sector experts in either retail or restaurants, which are, are my areas of focus. Uh, but more recently, I've been kind of more interested in abstracting a little bit and kind of getting into how do we analyze companies from a process standpoint, or how do we make good decisions from an investing standpoint? On a process standpoint, more technical, less interesting kind of to talk about today, uh, I but we can go into it if you want to, which is our process based on unit level economics. And so we try to find businesses that we can break into individual pieces and analyze them from um, a capital efficiency standpoint. Uh, but leaving that aside, um, the talk that I gave 
uh, at Vail uh, this year was about, I titled it destructive mental model. So, and my intention was, hey, most of us in the audience are professional investors. We have uh, processes that we use to analyze companies, but a lot of this coming from my own experience, even when you, when you analyze a company correctly, you can make really bad decisions uh, to buy or sell at the wrong time. Uh, and so why is that? Um, why are we making those bad decisions? And so I wanted to try to draw out um, some of the sources uh, behind the bad decisions and frame them in a way that people could recognize them in their own processes, recognize the influences that caused them, and then try to pivot away from those same bad decisions. So that's very abstract. So if I wanted to be a little bit more specific, um, and then Dan, I'll, I'll let you jump in, I guess. Like, so one of them, I started with this quiz. I said, okay, you know, how many days does it take the moon to go around the earth? Maybe one person in the audience knew it was 27 days. And then we went through a bunch of other uh, questions about, you know, how many days various planets take to revolve around the sun, ending with how many times, how long does it take the earth to go around 365 days? Okay. So the quiz was, what do all these numbers have in common? And, you know, people thinking it's about physics, blah, blah, blah. And my response is, none of them have anything to do with the ideal period to analyze an investment or an investment return. And the point of this was to emphasize something that everyone already knows, that 365 days is just completely arbitrary. It's, it's a number that doesn't correspond to the economic cycle. It doesn't correspond to a business cycle. It doesn't correspond to a specific capital cycle of a business. So if we think about our investments on a year-to-date basis or one-year basis um, or our one-year time horizon, we're really doing ourselves a disservice because it's not an appropriate time period really for anything. It's just a kind of a made-up number. Um, and I think it's a source of investment error. So you think about things in this, this period and it leads you to decisions that are not optimized to generating returns. I found this. Um, so this is really just sort of a, uh, I, I have to say, wonderfully original take on um, a theme that often comes up, especially among value-oriented types, which is just, you know, you got to think long-term, right? But what you're doing is you're establishing the absolute, I mean, uh, um, deeply ingrained nature you know how deeply ingrained it is for us to think short term like thinking beyond a year is just you know um i i think for most people and for a lot of us as you know in the business like thinking beyond a next quarter or two it is um unnatural it it just they it, it just you know thinking out two three years what's this thing going to look like in five years and as i recall um, when you presented Starbucks, for example, you know, you were, you were talking about, you know, years out and the effect of massive share repurchases. I thought you said they were going to, it was some big number. Don't quote me on the number, but, but it was like, they're going to buy back, you know, a third or half the stock within five or seven years or something, you know, at the rate they were going and with the plans they had. 
And that was really compelling to me, but it was several years in the future, right? So um, I, I, I loved this example. I really did. It's just another way of telling people don't be so short-term oriented. Or is it more than that? Well, if I can add to that a little bit, totally agree. And, and you're pretty close on the Starbucks numbers that you remember. Um, we, can, we can dive into that uh, a little bit more if you like. But in addition to pointing out the arbitrary character of 365 days, think about your investments or year to date, which is, you know, even, even though I'm arguing against it, something that I'm doing every day, um, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, why, aside from this being a convenient number, um, are we using these, these time horizons? And the answer is that um, there are industry structures that reinforce the use of, of these ways of thinking. And in particular, salespeople. So salespeople need to be able to sell something, right? So you can't sell something based on a time horizon that's kind of nebulous or extremely long. You need these shorter periods. So, and then in addition to that, um, the industry from a compensation standpoint is based on one-year chunks. So managers are thinking in one-year time horizons because that's how they get paid. Um, and the reporting of the performance goes into, is aligned in this way. So it's, it's really, there are these reinforcing structures that force us back into this one-year time horizon, which again, I think is not aligned with how we should be thinking about our investments. But speaking to your other point um, about getting past the quarterly numbers or the short term, it's hard. Uh, it's it's hard and it takes a, it's a different discipline. And I do think it helps individual investors if they can look further out because it's one of the ways that you can get an edge versus professional investors because they're trapped in this paradigm of the one-year time horizon. They can't really escape it due to the incentive structures, which I've mentioned. Um, but as an individual investor, you don't have that restriction. You can, you can think much further out. Um, the question is, can you deal psychologically with the volatility of stock price movements, which was another part of the talk that I gave, uh, because you have this reinforcing impact of the prices moving and how that inter interacts with your emotions and your ability to deal with that. And um, that that's a whole separate subject. All right. Do you, um, should we get do another example from the presentation? Do you feel like doing that? Uh, sure. So in addition to that, um, I talked about two ways, and I'll give you three examples, I guess, three different ways that the pattern-seeking brain uh, gets in the way of making good decisions. And so the first one I just alluded to a little bit is the idea that stock prices um, are a false feedback loop. So if you buy a stock and it goes down, you immediately think, I must not know something or I must have made a mistake, like the stock's going down. Or uh, you may think that something is going wrong with the business, like there's something happening at the business that I didn't, I'm not aware of, and hence people are selling off the stock. Um, and so I think it's really hard to, to separate the movement of stock prices from the noise that frequently causes them, 
but your brain wants to cause it. You want to create a narrative. You want to say like, oh, there's a reason why the stock's going down. It's, it's something terrible is happening, obviously. So then that makes you want to sell the stock because, you know, you're afraid of losing more money. But that's the first one is that, is that the, your brain is trying to, to create a, a narrative for the stock price movement when sometimes it has absolutely nothing to do at all with the fundamentals of the business. So that's point number one. Point number two, I called it the, the wise man problem. And the wise man problem is when after a lot of experience, um, you think that uh, you've already kind of seen it all, you know it all, and therefore, um, when you approach um, a situation, your first uh, instinct is to uh, search for some part of your experience that was similar to what you're seeing today, and you discount as a result things that are different. And to Today's market, 2023, I think is a really good example of this. So as we started the beginning of the year, um, there were a lot of economists and macro people, um, and I'm not a macro analyst or an economist, but who pointed to the fact that interest rates were rising and inflation was high and the yield curve was inverted as a sign that we were definitely going to have a recession. And... I'm not saying that I know or don't know whether there's going to be a recession. I, I can't predict these kind of things. I certainly know that those factors that the economists are calling out have historically correlated with recession. But the mistake in my mind is that you think you've seen this before. And so these are the most important characteristics in predicting what's going to happen next. But in fact, it's what's different about this time that you should be considering. Um, so that's the wise man problem. The more information you have about similar situations in the past, the less likely you might be to see what's different this time. And then the third one was something I called analysis by analogy. And it's a similar vein. So um, this might be a little bit more uh, for equity analysts versus in individual investors. But what happens when I see a new company for the first time or when my clients see a company for the first time, um, uh, let's say, let's talk about, for example, um, Kava, uh, which just went public two weeks ago. It's a Mediterranean restaurant, um, fast casual chain, and it's, it was a very successful IPO, one of the most successful IPOs in the space in several years. And so I think the first thing that happens um, when investors encounter a company like this is they think, how is this similar to other businesses, which I already know? And it it makes sense to do that because you want to save time. You're trying to get to the analysis as quickly as possible, arrive at the conclusion as quickly as possible. But in so doing, you actually miss what's different or unique or special about the business. So it discounts it. So your brain is discounting the interesting, different, unique period. And so here are three ways that your, your pattern-seeking brain kind of gets in the way of you making good decisions, seeing things that how they are and, um, and and approaching an analysis in a way that's going to help you to uh, make you know the right idea to either get long or get short or sell one of these stocks. Yeah, so maybe we should try to give our audience a little bit of hope now. <laughs> since We've told them everything they're going to do wrong and all the reasons why they're going to make bad decisions. Um, I guarantee you, John, 80% of them at least are listening to this and goes, okay, okay, okay. 
you know, how do I fix this? Can I fix it? Well, the, the, the answer is yes, you absolutely can. I mean, I want to have a positive answer. I don't, I do not, I'm not an indexer personally. I mean, I put all my money in the stock market. I'm very concentrated portfolio. Um, I personally am able to deal with volatility, which I don't know if everyone can accept the same level of volatility that, that I can in my investments. But um, I think the answer is absolutely. I also like to rail against this idea that it's impossible to beat the market. I think that, I think this is actually just um, a myth a myth per, uh, by other salespeople, by the salespeople of ETFs. Of course, they want you to think that no one could beat the market. They have something to sell to you. No, none of these people are innocent. Nobody's. There's no like you know benevolent investing group out there. I mean, you know, obviously some people are trying to act in your in your best favor. But when you look at the industry structures. They're driven by sales, a sales process, and so they need you to to believe them and to and to get involved with their product. Um, so, but my my message would be: you can. There are the, the fact that many managers fail to beat the market ignores the fact that a substantial minority are beating the market. The harder part is to beat the market consistently every year. I think that's quite difficult. But certainly on a short-term basis or on an individual stock basis, you can find stocks that will do better than the overall market. Um, and the, the way that you have an, an edge as an individual investor is to not play the Wall Street game. You need to look further into the future. Don't trade your positions. Try to understand the companies that you invest in. Look for businesses that are relatively easy to understand, in my opinion. Uh, and I guess my biggest bet with regard to investing it is believing that the company will deploy its excess capital into other projects that will generate high returns. And so far, that's been a smart bet and I think continues to be a smart bet. So if you're an individual investor and you can focus on that and you can not get um, overwhelmed with, hey, interest rates are going up and so multiples have to contract and we're changing our discounted cash flow rate. Just ignore all of that talk and focus on the quality of the business, the, the strength it has, um, and really focus on the long term. I think you can do better and make good decisions and avoid these other troubles that kind of get in the way uh, and cause um, uh, stumbling blocks for a lot of people. Yeah. You know, volatility can be like a bucking bull. You're riding a bull and you need a very firm handle, something you can get a very firm grip on. And I feel like a lot of investors can get a very firm grip on that core business you described. Like that's a really firm handle. You can, you can hold on to that even if there's some narrative around some other part of the business that calls it into question or something. Um, and, and those, those attributes you described too, like, you know, lots of cash flow, highly profitable. It's always been that way. It's never been any other way. Are there other ones that, uh, you know, the retail restaurant guy would not be expected to own? This I'm curious about going down this avenue, if you don't mind. I, I mean, uh, sure, certainly. I mean, so I own a lot of these large tech companies. You know, Apple is a one of the best consumer products companies out there. Um, Google controls the world search. Not that hard to, it's easy to understand. Google is actually so entrenched in 
um, our daily lives that if I think if Google were to stop operating, you know, the whole place would just have rigor mortis. Like, I don't know that we could get away. Like, you know, Google Maps is everywhere. Google Meetings, like Google Gmail, like if it just stopped, like, I don't think it could be replaced. Like, it would be extremely uh, disruptive. That's how entrenched it is and necessary of a business it is. And then again, um, with not a lot of difficult work, you can show, you can look at this and say, oh my God, look at the cash that they generate. They have over $100 billion on their balance sheet. Um, this is an incredibly stable business that can withstand any kind of economic environment, probably can continue to grow, is global, um, super powerful company. And that's before we start thinking about the value of YouTube and some of their other assets that they're trying to develop. Um, Meta, I think, is, is a, a really interesting company. Uh, and it was one of the examples I had in mind when I was talking in Vail uh, about something value investors like to prioritize, which is this idea that you have to search in these unknown, you know, little corners of the market to find these hidden gems that nobody else knows about. Those are the only places that value can be, can be found. Look at Microsoft. Right. Last year was no analyst coverage. Yeah, it went from three hundred and thirty dollars <laughs> to ninety, and now it's almost back to two hundred. It's still only trading at ten times EV EBITDA, which I think is still quite cheap, considering that it's literally the most successful company in the world in terms of the number of total users. I think it would be hard for us to find a business. Maybe Coca Cola has more total users on the globe than, um, than meta. And so my view there was like, Hey, they're still very early in the long-term monetization of these customer relationships. It's like this, that's the reason to own. Everyone got focused on the metaverse, but I was like, this is the, the core business is really the key here. Um, if we moved away from that and talked about areas where I have a little bit more industry specific expertise, um, a stock that I've been buying recently and, um, just as a disclosure, you should do your own work and consult your own advisor. This is not a recommendation, uh, is, is Yeti. Um, and Yeti, I think, is a fantastic consumer product, uh, really high quality. It's, it's encouraging a lot of uh, consumers to trade up from what they consider to be appropriate drink or coolware in the past. Um, it has a very strong margin structure. They can expand the brand into other adjacent categories. And then what's interesting is that it was a pand it's a fallen pandemic winner. So the stock did incredibly well during the pandemic. And then post-pandemic, it kind of ran into a series of issues with um, too much uh, inventory in the channel, some supply chain costs. And then most recently, they had a, a, a product recall related to some magnets in one of their uh, cooler doors that could, after a period of time, detach and become loose and fall into the coolers. So the idea was like, well, you know, coolers is where you have food and drinks and there's these magnets in there. Like some, you know, children could reach in potentially and then ingest the magnets. And then if you have multiple magnets, then you have this big problem. This fortunately did not happen to anyone, but it caused them to, you know, out of prudence to uh, recall this product, which created a, a air pocket in their growth. And so that's the opportunity in the stock in my mind is that we were buying it during this air pocket. 
And as they come back with redesigned product later in the year, sales should accelerate. And then that, then you'll have kind of easy comparisons for a business that it has a very strong margin structure, currently trading at a discount to where it has been historically with a very, I think, long-term growth opportunity in front of it. Yeah, my initial reaction to Yeti has always been, um, well, actually, I should back up. We had a guest a few years ago, like pre-COVID, talking about this stock. <laughs> I was like, mm, you know, I'm, I was, basically, I'm going to say the same skeptical things I said then, which, you know, not looking so great right now. But I worry about this because every time I think about coolers, I think, well, don't people just sort of go to the 7-Eleven and get whatever's on? You know what I'm saying? Like a cooler, does anybody really think about the brand name of a cooler? And I wonder, um, I'm, I think that, you know, well, of course, there's a big difference between, you know, a really solid brand and something that's faddish. So maybe I could ask you, are, how sure are you or, or what gives you conviction that this isn't like um, faddish, a fad? You know, a short-term sort of thing where a few people are getting excited about Yeti, and and but it's a real brand with some long-term. Like you're not a short-term guy, and you're buying this cooler company. This is interesting to me. So I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, so there is some risk that they are not able to extend the brand or maintain the brand. Um, this is a consumer products company, so it's not like software as a service, right? Where you can just roll out the new update and people will automatically um, renew. Here, uh, what's really important is innovation. Uh, and the co company needs to come out with new products and updates on products and improvements on products that is going to keep the consumer engaged with the brand and w willing to um, add more Yeti products to their lifestyle portfolio. Um, so that's, that's the kind of core challenge, you know, will they be able to do that? With regard to that earlier point about the brands and whether people are, will, I think, I think there I would, I don't want to say push back, but I would give you the example of glamping. I don't know if you've heard about glamping, right? So I know you live in, in the Pacific Northwest, but, um, you know, the, People want to um, be associated with brands they believe in. That's for sure. Um, they want highly functional products. Um, the Yeti products are, I would say, over-designed, but they are incredibly high quality relative to what was available in the past. So consumers love those things. Um, one one charge I might make is like as you drive around, uh, look and see if you've got if people are putting Yeti stickers on their cars and on their bumpers like that. People only do that when they want to be associated with the brand. Uh, so I think it's a, it's an incredibly strong brand. I've also, as part of my research, uh, met with most of their large uh, wholesale distributors, such as Academy Sports or Dick Sporting Goods. And if you go into those stores and talk to the merchants. Uh, you can see the product positioning, how they're in the stores, um, you know, and they're, these are high quality products sold at full price in premium distribution. And that's a sign, or you could take that as a sign that the brand is strengthened, very strong and, and able to, to justify that positioning. Now, again, 
how is it going to be two years from now or three years from now? Um, this is where you're making a little bit more of an investment bet. You're saying, I think this company will continue to innovate, will fend off competition because there are knockoffs, people trying to create uh, a similar product at a lower price because these Yeti products are quite premium positioned um, and they have to be able to do that. And I, my feeling is that they can. And I like the idea that I can buy the stock at a lower price where it's not reflecting an assumption that they are just going to continue to, to crush it indefinitely. If I speak of a different company that I follow for my professional clients, Lululemon, um, that's another company that is a premium position brand that has tons of competition that it's fended off and has continued to do really well. And I would say the same thing about it from an innovation standpoint. If you're going to be engaging with the customer, you, the, what's, in, what's really uh, imperative is new products, new innovation, new techniques. Got to keep that customer excited. Why do they need more Lululemon leggings in their closet? Well, because you have a new cutout and your new styling and new colors and new technical fabrics. And those are the things that keep the customer coming back. Um, and that's, that's really challenging. Not that many businesses are able to do that consistently over the long term. Yeah. Off of everything you just said, John, you use the word over-designed to describe Yeti. And boy, that resonated with me because I feel like something happened. I feel like Apple did something to us and it brought, um, design to the masses in a way that hadn't been done before. I feel like. Because every, you know, app like that was that was one of Steve Jobs' big things. He was all worried about the fonts and the look and the feel and everything. So now I feel like every product I get, I mean, you know, everything unboxes in a dramatic way. And uh, you know, I just, I bought these little headphones that I'm wearing to talk to you, and it un, you know, it's got a fancy box and and. Um, I'm just, I see that phenomenon over it, like it's everywhere. I feel like now when it gets to coolers, I mean, is it overdone? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, you go, am I really unboxing something? I can get at the 7-Eleven here. It's, 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 it's a strange world we live in to say the least, but you make a good case for Yeti, I, I will say. All right. You know what? I think it's a decent time to do our final question. I ask every guest the same final question. If you could leave our listeners with a single thought today, what would it be? I would say many people make uh, investing a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, and I think that if you're trying to beat the market on a short-term basis, you're going to cause yourself a lot of frustration. And you should focus on uh, owning really great companies over a very long period of time and your time horizon as an investor, you should be thinking about your investments in the context of the end use case for the money that you're trying to save, not to hit short-term performance targets or measure yourself against the market. You're looking for what is going to get you to those, those longer term objectives. And I, I think if you really orient your thinking towards um, where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do with your investments, that will help you avoid doing things. The, the worst thing you can do as an individual investor is sell in a panic and buy when the market's already going up. So you want to avoid that at all costs. 
And the way that you do that is not getting caught into the cycle of the, the media firestorm of fear and excitement that, that um, Wall Street inevitably uh, foists on everyone. Thank you for that, John. That's, that's good stuff. I hope people really, I hope people took notes when you were talking and, and wrote all that stuff down um, because it's exactly what they ought to do. And you mentioned it earlier, didn't you? You said that it's basically an easy way to get an edge. And I've said this many times. It's like the low-hanging fruit. A longer-term perspective for an individual investor is the, the low-hanging fruit. That's the way to get an edge. may not be emotionally easy, but it's technically, it's right there. And I think you just said it very well. Listen, thanks for being here. Thanks for doing this. I'm glad we finally got you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks so much for, for having me. Many mainstream analysts are predicting that stocks will recover soon. But I say we'll instead witness a cash frenzy unlike we've experienced in 21 years before stocks recover. And I'm urging Americans not to buy a single stock until they see it. I predicted the Lehman Brothers crash in 2008, and I called the top of the NASDAQ in 2021. But this, this is the number one most important thing to pay attention to for 2023. And I'm not talking about another market crash or politics or inflation or any of these other things. As all this unfolds, the financial consequences of what I'm talking about could last for several decades if you don't understand what's happening. There will be winners and losers. And now is the time to decide which one you'll be. This is why I strongly encourage you to read about my warning totally free today. It's all spelled out in a free report we've put together. Get the facts yourself. Go to www.stockdeadzone.com to get your free copy of this report. You can learn how to get my four steps to prepare for what's coming. Again, that's www.stockdeadzone for a free copy of this new report. That was a good talk. I, I've known John for phew, better part of a decade, and um, he's a very thoughtful, um, just insightful analyst. And when I've seen him present stocks at the Value X Vale conference, he has a way of sort of getting at the one or two, maybe three at the most, um, really important things to know if you're considering purchasing that stock at that at that time there may be other things to know at other times there may be many aspects to the business but um you know i recall when he presented starbucks he we and we talked during the interview about um how much of the stock they were going to be buying back in the next five to ten years something like that and i thought wow that's amazing i mean that supports a much you know, higher valuation today than, than what it was at the time. And of course we did get lucky. The stock had fallen right before that point. So it was just really attractive, but, um, really great analysts. Now, when I was in Vail, um, I talked with another fellow who I know who's a very smart, um, sort of banker, merchant banker type of a guy. And he was telling me about a podcast where they, um, did an interview. And then every single time after the interview, they talked about the things they agreed with and the things they disagreed with, um, with their guest. Um, <laughs> and I thought it sounded like a good thing because, you know, um, 
not everybody agrees about everything. And I'm afraid that when I talk after my interviews, every time I say the same thing, hey, that was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. You know, we're always saying that on the show. It is true, but I understand it could get a little boring. My problem with this idea this week is I found like little to nothing to disagree with. I, and I pushed back on the idea that Yeti was a brand with, you know, long-term uh, potential. And But John responded to that quite rationally and said, yeah, that is a risk. So so I think we're covered on, on things I might disagree with for this episode. But for future episodes, um, I'll see if I can't make my outro and my my ending comments um, a little more interesting in that regard. But for now, that's another interview and that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com, click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody who might like it, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at InvestorHour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at InvestorHour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. If you have a guest you want us to interview, drop us a note at feedback at investorhour.com or call the listener feedback line 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. For my co-host, Corey McLaughlin, till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to investorhour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email, feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansberry Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Stansberry Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Stansberry Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Stansberry Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.